Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are thrilled to have two guests today. It's like two for one. Um, two friends from Unbound Ed. They are joining us to discuss the equitable ELA instruction concept paper. And we can't wait to dive into it a little bit more with them today. So, Melissa, I know you're excited because well, we've been waiting to talk about this. <laughs> we, we read this uh over the summer probably and we've been talking about it amongst ourselves and we uh cannot wait to actually talk to someone else about it I mean equitable ELA instruction that's what we talk about all the time so that's our jam yeah (laughs) we can't wait to talk to other people about it that have have gone deep like we have so can't wait to talk to Allison Brandon yeah welcome Allison Brandon how are you both oh I'm great thanks for having us yes definitely excited to be on Thank you. So we'd love for you both to just briefly introduce yourselves before we dive in to the paper. Um, Alex, why don't you go first? All right. Uh, I'll just uh, let you know that we are known as Classroom A and Classroom B because Classroom yes. B is Brandon's uh, Twitter handle. So I dubbed myself, <laughs> classroom, I dubbed myself Classroom A. That's great. I am Alice Wiggins and I am Vice President of instructional design and product at Unbound Ed. And I am um, an early literacy um, junkie. I love, it's kind of where I got my start in education. And I really love kind of diving into that. And these days with my new role at the organization, I don't, I don't get that often as, I don't get that option as often as I'd like. So I'm really excited to be doing this. Good. Well, we also are, are, all kinds of literacy junkies. So you're in the right spot. Absolutely. <laughs> Brandon, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, hi, I'm Brandon. <laughs> I'm an ELA specialist for Unbounded. Uh, prior to working for Unbounded, I was a middle school uh, ELA teacher and um, coordinated restorative practices for the school I worked in, in the Rochester City School District. And I also was a uh, educator and uh, site coordinator for a program called Freedom Schools Summer Literacy Program, which fuses a lot of the things we're talking about here in this paper uh, with cultural responsive uh, approaches. You know that I love middle school teachers. Yeah, <laughs> we're a special crop for sure. We're a special crop for sure. <laughs> you all both have some interesting paths to education. Do you guys want to share those stories with everybody? Uh, sure, we can do that. A before B, Brandon. Uh, we could, yeah. Let's 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 swap and switch. Okay, you <laughs> um, go first then. Let's see. So uh, essentially, for me, um, the idea of appreciating uh, expression through the English language kind of came from uh, my hip hop culture, where these literary uh, literary conventions and elements that were being talked about were being artfully and masterfully expressed by the uh, MCs I was listening to in hip hop. And so I was like, oh, so this isn't some, you know, strange, irrelevant thing to be studying. Um, And then in terms of becoming a teacher, um, I got closer to 
uh, the history around uh, the ways that African-Americans have been oppressed in this country, which had a lot to do with literacy, uh, making sure we are not literate in the English language, um, had a lot to do with um, how uh, we were being oppressed. So I was like, huh, okay, well, it makes sense to uh, give that power uh, to other folks um, that are growing up. So that's that's kind of how I fell into it. Awesome. Thank I don't you know how I can top that story. Yours is, I love your story, <laughs> uh, Alice. I love it because it, it's so different. Yeah, my... Um, my path, like Brandon's, is uh, was not a straightforward. I always knew I wanted to do education thing. I actually um, have an undergraduate degree in computer science and worked as a programmer and a network engineer and a network project manager and did sort of this whole technology career before my daughter was born and right before my daughter started school. As like, I really want to one. I want to do something that I feel like I'm helping people. I was working for a big bank and their primary business was credit cards and their primary uh, target audience was people who really couldn't afford to have more debt. Um, So I left, I left there. I got a, um, went to night school, got a teaching certification through an alternate path. And I was looking for a teaching position and my daughter was getting ready to start kindergarten. And I, um, through serendipity, ended up um, at a early language and literacy research lab at the University of Virginia. I'd always thought I was going to do sort of the same kind of late elementary middle school instruction, but I ended up in this research lab and sort of developed some strong chops around uh, early literacy and language and the connection between language and literacy um, and the, the um, criticality of a foundation in the sound structure of language for learning to read. And then I left there for the Core Knowledge Foundation. And I was at the Core Knowledge Foundation during the creation of CKLA. And um, what I got from the Core Knowledge Foundation was sort of the other half of the critical pieces of learning to read, which is this idea of um, a broad base of background knowledge and vocabulary to support reading comprehension. And those two things together, as, as you all well know, um, make up the really important pieces of um, a particularly early literacy for um, teaching kids to read. And then from there, I ended up at Unbound Ed. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are today. Oh, well, thank you both for sharing those stories. It's always so interesting to hear how how guests get from point A to point B and and how they've arrived in their educational journey. So thank you for sharing. (laughs) Um, And I think today we're going to talk a little bit more about the equitable ELA instruction concept paper that Unbound Ed put forth. Um, I'm trying to look at when, and I I do believe it was in the summer, maybe before the summer. Well, you all would know. Why don't you tell us? Uh, and not off the top of my head, I don't know. I think maybe... Okay. Um, Let's say spring 2020 on it. So. Yeah, okay. I think it was in the spring before the pandemic. I was saying right at pandemic yeah. You're right. time. <laughs> yeah. I have it very small on my screen and I'm like trying to lean in and see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we were... Melissa and I were drawn, were drawn to this um, because, I mean, for many reasons, but we, we love some components of it, which are... Um, some little vignettes that you have sprinkled Mm -hmm. throughout to really help 
show what you're talking about. Like it's like a little story within the paper that helps show and, and really like visualize, um, and, and bring to life the concepts that you're discussing. So I'm wondering if you two might be able to share a little bit about, um, this concept paper and, and the impetus behind it and maybe the role that you played in it and just anything about it that you'd like listeners to know before we actually start talking about it. Sure. Uh, Brandon, you want to go? Maybe. I also want to know why, why you're like, we have to talk about that too later. Why you're called classroom on Twitter. Yeah, no doubt. I'd love to answer that question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> question. I, we'll asked it. It. I just, I just made an assumption. I never asked that question. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, when I, when I got to Unbounded, or actually when Brandon arrived at Unbounded, he arrived after I did. Um, we had this really interesting relationship and conversations about literacy because I'm a, I was an early literacy person and he's a middle school person. And he, um, he and I struck up all these conversations about literacy because he Brandon, you can you can tell your story, but he re, he remembers how he was taught to read, and um, he recognized how it differed from the way I talked about early literacy and what's required. Mm. And so we had we had some conversations about that and the equity aspects of that. And I'll let um, Brandon fill in that part of the story. And I think the I forgot where I was going. <laughs> Brandon, why don't you fill oh, yeah. in that part of the story and I'll see if I can remember. Where you can I was. catch sure. yep, yep, You can catch absolutely. up. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I got you, Alice. Um, so, yeah, I, it, when she would talk about uh, literacy, early literacy in, in particular, like it was just totally alien to what I was uh, exposed to instructionally growing up. I was a whole language instruction baby, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and, and, I had very little uh, 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 systematic phonics instruction uh, involved in, in in growing up. It was kind of like uh, very sink or swim, see these general patterns, uh, get exposed, and you'll become a better reader when obviously the science proves that um, you can be a lot more intricate and a lot more uh, intentional than that. But um due to uh, just my own curiosity um, and due to the fact that, you know, I had a lot of uh, parental and communal support, um, I, I turned out okay. <laughs> but um, in hearing her talk about those things, I wondered about what if I didn't have all these supports um, and all this encouragement and positive affirming relationships with uh, reading and literacy, like my mother's a librarian. So even though I didn't get oh, yeah. taught the science of reading there still was always this positive culture around books and reading so what if none of that was around uh what would i be doing uh what opportunities would i uh foresee available to me so you know this conversation was going on at the same time um you know alice had this uh mission to kind of put these things out um, and so did uh, co-author Josh Parker. And then all these ideas and all these conversations started to meld together into uh, what you're seeing here in this paper. Yeah, and I think the, the other piece uh, that 
that Brandon and I talked about was because he was a middle school teacher, like what are the yeah. impacts up in a middle school of kids who don't get this foundational yes. learning? And I think when we, when, um, when we initially started to write the paper, it was more of a how-to paper and kind of diving in on what, what we've now come to call, right, the science of reading. <laughs> this is before that, became, before that became the term of the day. But um, it was a lot yeah. more on the how to do this thing in the classroom. And what we realized in the writing of the paper was that we really needed to build some awareness of some foundational stuff that had to be in place before you could even dive into the actual nuts and bolts of the how to do it. And so the paper is is really introducing like three really important things that have to be in place for whatever program and however you're doing this to work and that they they set this foundation for equity in ELA instruction. So the three things are you have to start with an aligned curriculum. I mean, we, there's a plenty of research on there about how much money it costs to create a curriculum and how incoherent curriculum can be when teachers are trying to make your own and the um, lack of quality of many of the things that are available freely on the internet. And so adopting a line curriculum for us was a starting point. And then the other two things really provide the synergy to that and address a couple of things that we saw as we would visit schools where they were adopting a line curriculum. We saw some practices that were pulling students particularly students who most needed that aligned curriculum, pulling students away from the curriculum. So um, the second principle is in the paper is that you have to provide instructional supports that foster students' persistence in the work of the grade level curriculum. And by that, we mean things like productive struggle and scaffolding and using the students' individual cultures and contexts to bring them to the work of the aligned curriculum. And then the third thing is um, providing a targeted intervention, but not just having intervention available, um, making sure that it is, A, happening in service of the aligned curriculum. So it's not like a whole separate path of learning or uh, going back to the past to catch up on missed stuff, that it is more just in time, right? More providing support to get kids, like whatever support's happening to address unfinished instruction is also supporting kids with the the day-to-day grade level instruction. And then the second thing is that that it's not happening in a pullout that takes kids away from the grade level content that they should be learning because that's just a way to perpetually um, damage. I cannot wait to dig into all three of them. (laughs) I'm so excited. Um, I'm wondering if we can start with just talking about the curriculum a little bit more, the number one, focus on adopting an aligned curriculum. One thing I do want to, I did see the other day on a Facebook group, I think, where someone said, I'm trying to follow the Unbound Ed. Um, whatever, I don't know what they called it, but it was these three things. Um, and then, and they're like, so we have to start, we're starting with getting our aligned curriculum. And they were asking for advice on curriculum. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm curious about, I think I, I think I get this, but I want to make sure it's very clear for our listeners too of, you know, I often feel like, especially when I was in Baltimore, it was like curriculum is over here on this side. And then we're doing these other things over here for equity, right? Like these are two separate things. And I wanted to hear from you all, like, how do you see 
this adopting the line curriculum, which often falls not in the equity world in the, for a lot of people. How do you see that as, as equitable? Um, I think when you are setting parameters in your instruction to make sure that nobody is uh, receiving lackluster instruction, that's equity, right? Um, an aligned curriculum intellectually or academically or skills-wise is designed to do that, right? Um, there's a bar around how much a student is going to be pushed. That's a fair bar, right? Um, and many times, uh, unfortunately, um, as the TNTP report that we cite uh, in this paper a couple times, when kind of left alone without this bar being encouraged in the classroom, um, students are often not given high quality, uh, rigorous instruction. And oftentimes that's divided in racial lines, right? Um, students who are not white are more likely to spend less time, um, way less time um, in, in, in being pushed um, and then having, you know, rigorous materials in front of them and having rigorous instruction to accompany those rigorous materials. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there's been clamoring around, a, you know, a racial achievement gap, but really it's a racial provision gap, right, about who's given what. And so an aligned curriculum is one step to try to make sure that no matter who you are, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your economic background is, you're going to be exposed to a certain bar of rigor in terms of what you, what content you interface with and what instruction you interface with. With that being said, though, um, that is one step, right? So when you when you are adopting an aligned curriculum, that is one tool, right? Like you can't really you know build. Uh, you know, I don't know, like a chair or a table without a hammer, right? You like, you need that as, but like, it's also about the hammer user, right? Um, and, and what does this person know about hammer usage to make sure that they're using it the way that they need to use it for their very specific context? So you can have an aligned curriculum, but do you understand it enough to know how to leverage it enough to make sure that it meets the very specific needs of the kids in your classroom, right? Um, and you understand it enough to know that it's weak, its weaknesses. We're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we when we wrote the paper, we wanted to make it clear that an aligned curriculum is not some sort of uh, papal edict, <laughs> right? That people see as like you know this 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 religiously flawless document, <laughs> right? Um, it definitely, it's, it's a cultural artifact, as uh, our colleague Shaquilla has said several times, like it's going to have its strengths, it's going to have its blind spots. And um, what is your mindset and your will set to know what those blind spots are um, in order to, you know, fill in those blind spots, uh, whether they are in terms of rigor or in terms of like cultural short-sightedness, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to fill those in um, and pair them with uh, who your students are, what your students are doing, 
to make sure that the the, the grade level uh, experience it stays intact. So the, the, those are some of my thoughts about that. Yeah, Brandon. I, yeah, I, Brandon, I really love what you said about the hammer because the um, the comment I was going to make is Melissa. You said you know curriculum is separate from equity. And I've really been thinking a lot about those that the language we use lately and the specificity of the language, particularly in these, you know, this political um, climate. And one of the things that I've come to realize about equity is that we should be more intentional about naming the equity of what, because equity by itself is just a buzzword. So what are we talking about? We're talking about equitable access to that aligned curriculum. And to Brandon's hammer point, you can have equitable access to an aligned curriculum. All kids can be sitting in a classroom where an aligned curriculum is in use, but the instruction might not be equitable, right? Some kids might get called on more than other kids. Some kids may get versions of that curriculum that have been modified to a lower level of rigor. And some kids may get supports that help them achieve a higher level of rigor. And so um, I think it's really important to name to name that the equity of what. And, and for me, um, as I thought about adopting aligned curriculum, right, it is that equitable access as the TNTP opportunity myth, you know, points out is kids are not getting equitable access to grade level instruction. Um, but, I'm, but I also think about if you don't start with a standards aligned curriculum, which has been designed to exemplify the rigor of, and demands of grade level standards, then you're starting with low expectations, right? If you don't mm-hmm. start with, with that, then you're starting below the bar that, that Brandon mentioned, right? You're starting with low expectations. Yeah, absolutely. I know that like when we talk to teachers that have implemented a high quality curriculum, hearing their stories about like, you know, we, it was hard at first, but we stuck through it. I had high expectations for my students and man, like the the writing was just like more than I've ever seen or the conversations they were having. And that is like, I'm like, yes, (laughs) right. Like this is, that's it. That's what we're looking for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We talked with the teacher this morning, same story. (laughs) That's great. It always reminds me, my husband's a cross country coach and it always reminds me of what, what he says about his runners, right? Is that you always run to the level of the pack. So if, and and in, in the paper, we actually cite some evidence about the fact that high expectations support and help students who are not high achievers, but it doesn't harm students who are high achievers, right? So, right. yeah. Oh my gosh. So true. It's so, I feel like it's just so relatable to every scenario. Like we could talk about it, like high expectations and we can center the conversation in, in education, in school, we could center it in sports. We could center it in um, the arts, but you know, I, I think about, I always think about my own child and I want her to be surrounded by people who have high expectations of her so that she can grow to the fullest potential. And I just think that that's true for every scenario in life, like whether it's my supervisor, whether I'm a supervisor, I, you know, that's how you uplift people to their best. And to think that we would give children any less is really difficult to even like consider. So thank you for, thank you for that. I like that cross country example. So, (laughs) um, I'm wondering if we can move to number two, uh, and, 
and talk a little bit about that. Um, I'll share what that that second one was and refresh everyone's memory, and then I'll turn it over to you all. Um, provide instructional support that fosters all students' persistence with grade level reading and thinking. So can you tell us a little bit about what that means in the context? And I, I love that you guys talk about like, what's a support versus a modification? I think mm. this, <laughs> yes, this is <laughs> so necessary for teachers to hear. Yeah, um, I, I think when we originally wrote this, that persistence piece, I think was about, was really about making ki- making sure that teachers didn't give up on kids and kids didn't give up on themselves, right? And so it's tied to high expectations. And um, we, we have a, um, a relatively new way that we've been talking about this work at Unbound Ed. We, talk, we now talk about GLEAM instruction, which is grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. And this, I like that. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, so we covered the grade level, right? This is the standards aligned curriculum is we have to start with grade level. Um, and the engaging piece, it is about persistence in the work. So things like productive struggle and scaffolding. And as you said, um, differentiating between supports, which maintain the grade level rigor and provide access to the grade level work and modifications that, that change the work and provide kids with air quotes, success, but not at the same level of rigor. And um, it also, I think, like to really talk about gleam and culturally responsive and sustaining instruction, there is also this piece of it beyond persistence that is um, about developing students, um, what Zaretta Hammond calls intellective capacity, right? Like self-starting, self-motivated, self um loving, self-affirming learners who have the tools that we need, that they need to do the work. And, and the um, number two is really about giving students many of the, you know, many of those tools that they can use. And so um, let me just kind of make a subtle distinction between that supports versus modifications, because I think that's a Please little do. bit where you were after. And then I'll let uh, Brandon chime in here. But um, when we, look at what happens in classrooms as we do classroom visits. And as the, the, the vignettes that you mentioned early on, the stories within the paper are really drawn from what we've seen in our years of visiting classrooms about the differences between um, how teachers either support or modify the curriculum for access. So when we're talking about um, supports, I, I like to use this um, I mean, people all the time use this analogy of a scaffold, right? And you've heard scaffolding and you've seen like, yeah, I'm sure you've been at a PD session where, you know, somebody's put up a picture of a house with scaffolding all over it and talk to you about scaffolding. And um, what I realized is there, there's actually two uses for scaffolding and construction, right? Sometimes the scaffolding is there, like the scaffolding that uh, after the fire in Paris, right? They put around the church, they put the scaffolding, not for the purposes of work just yet, but for the purposes of securing or holding up the structure, right? And so um, I think of modifications like that. We're trying to prop students up, hold students up so they don't fail. And that scaffolding is there for the purposes of holding them up, not for the purposes of granting them access. 
The other type of scaffolding is sort of the scaffolding a construction worker uses day to day. I need to reach the second floor. I need to put some scaffolding up so that I can access the second floor, right? And the scaffolding is there to support the work of the day. And that's the way I can think about it in the classroom, right? Like what supports can we provide to give kids access to the grade level work of the day? Right, because I always think that like that scaffolding in either way should come down eventually, right? Like we exactly, right, exactly. Point it's is we want to take it away. It's temporary in both cases. It's temporary. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like when like the sometimes we'll see in classrooms, you know, teachers will and actually I saw this on Facebook the other day in um in a science of reading group. A teacher posted, you know, I'm just starting this new curriculum. I'm not sure that my sixth grade students will be able to read this text. What should I do? And it was really interesting to see the comments because some of them were like, oh, it is really hard for students. Um, You know, here are some ideas. And then some were like, your students will be able to do this. I've done it with my students. It was hard at first, but we persevered. And here's how we essentially supported them through. Right. So it was, it was very clear, but and like I was going through kind of knowing we were going to podcast about this and I'm thinking which ones are supports and which ones are modifications. And the, it's really interesting because the tone of all of the comments that were support comments was uplifting, was like, you can do this. And the, the tone of the modification comments were like, well, you have to make it easier because, and it was this like, I, I don't know, I maybe I was just reading it like that, but I could feel the modification, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you read yeah. it too, Melissa, I said, yeah. you. you could you're feel it like the mindset, the mindset, yeah, yeah. you're feeling yeah. the mindset. It was either like uplifting or I don't know, maybe like a deficit, a, an exhale, like, yeah, yeah. like a, oh. Yeah. They can't do it. Um, yeah. Brandon, yeah. Yeah. Too. We, we talk <laughs> yeah, about that phrase all the time, but my kids can't. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. When you, you don't even know you haven't tried. As, I think yes. it's really funny because that conversation, it, it was started with a different book, but it went to Bud Not Buddy in sixth grade, which was exactly the examples you all gave in this paper, which I just thought was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> it's like, it's exactly the same. Um, but the thing that hurt my heart in some of those comments was the teachers who said, well, I just read the whole book out loud to them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and wanted to get what, what you all thought about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny because that goes back to the vignettes, right? Like, because mm-hmm. teacher A, uh, not Alice in this case, <laughs> um, <laughs> decided yeah. to, uh, you know, do that. And then teacher B, not Brandon in this case, decided to not do that. Um, and, and I think that, well, one, uh, let me let me let me sympathize with the average teacher because the profession is a very overwhelming profession yes. and it can be very easy to be like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, (laughs) right? There are a billion and one factors every 30 minutes in the classroom. And they're they're right that a lot of their students are reading below grade level, right? Yes, right. It's true. So so with, with that being in mind though, right? Yes, it's overwhelming. I like the approach that this individual you're talking about, um, you know, took where it's like, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do somebody please help. And then the people who, you know, uh, provided optimism and tools, I think, uh, I would hope they, they actually, um, 
they were actually a benefit to the person asking for help. I just feel like, you know, I, I was, um, my wife watches the, uh, the good doctor that show the good doctor and mm-hmm. a lot of other like, uh, doctor shows. Right. And whenever I watch these doctor shows, there's always like some impossible, like physical ailment, right. That's like seemingly impossible to like fix or, or heal a person from, um, but somehow they figure it out. And I know this is all, you know, television, right? But I really don't think it's that far off from what surgeons do on a regular basis, where there is, it's not like patients come in with their bodies totally equipped to solve the challenge. There are a bunch of challenges that are in the way of them trying to provide the healing and the medical support. And they valuing the profession, valuing the people they have to operate on, figure it out amidst all the stress and they go for it, even though it's seemingly impossible. I don't know if the teaching profession is often the same sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Where we have these challenges, um, is the environment valuing the profession enough? Is it valuing the people that are being educated enough to really dig and think about what the uh, best practices and, and and tools are, right? So in the case of you know Daniel in the in the uh, in the case study, right, in the in the um, vignette, what did the teacher do, right? Um, provided the text uh, audio text uh, the day before, right, for but not buddy provided. Uh, copies, maybe providing copies of the text with line numbers to make it easier to navigate, not gutting the rigor of the text, but making it easier to navigate, Uh, Mm -hmm. chunking the text, right? Like, so you're not diluting it. Maybe you're, uh, you know, shortening the amount of text they can expose, get exposed to, but you're still exposing them to that rigor, right? And then you're asking these scaffolding questions to lead into a bigger text dependent question, right? Like these are, all like, you know, best practices, best techniques to make sure that students get access to grade level text. And, you know, sometimes that might not be enough, but there are other things that can be done um, Mm -hmm. if explored through the curriculum, because sometimes the curriculum does have some answers for that um, and or co-planning with your uh, colleagues around this and or seeking a PLC formal or informal community around how to do these things. Um, but yeah. So yeah, that, that's Brandon, I think you, you really got at the heart of this thing. This, like we talk about this phrase all the time we hear teachers say, but my kids can't whatever it is, but my kids can't. And often what they really mean is I don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of like even making this tiny distinction between a, support versus a modification has been a real aha moment in our professional learning offerings um, for educators because they they're just thinking about helping kids and they're not thinking or distinguishing between whether the help that they're providing is providing the grade level access or gutting the rigor and I think just just that learning right oh that's one thing I need now I can think more about the thing that I'm doing and um, the examples that are in the paper that that Brandon just reviewed um, and the point that you made, Melissa, about scaffolding comes down, right? So I can chunk the text and I can work with a smaller piece to lower the demand of 
students who are challenged by reading, I can lower the cognitive demand for them and do that work and then piece it together. And over time, I will be able to use bigger chunks. And then eventually I'll be able to get to the the text as a whole and not make those um, adaptations for support. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I quickly bring? Oh, oh, sorry. We all talked at we once because we were so, so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Brandon. No, I, I was just going to say to further elaborate on what Al, that last point Alice made. Um, I, I remember in in gym in elementary school where if we had to do like fitness tests, right? Um, the 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 gym instructor would actually be like. Um, all right, uh, do 20 push-ups. Uh, girls, without seeing what the girls could do, girls, just do them, do them on your knees. Like, don't, don't be on your feet, do them on your knees and just push up like that. Um, meanwhile, we can do like a hundred. Right, meanwhile, they were like, you know, my, my, my fragile self was like, probably get push up by like, like a lot of the girls in the, in the, in the, in the class. But there was like this assumption uh, that you know, certain students would be equipped to do traditional push-ups, and certain students would not, right? Yeah. Um, and and even if there were ones that couldn't, um, even if there were ones that couldn't, you want them to still do it. But maybe you change the number, right? Um, maybe you you know decide what type of like do they, you want your arms closer to your chest? You want them more far out, like the 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 actual exercise needs to happen and so it can actually build as a skill right mm-hmm. and you know translating that over to this uh you know teaching english language arts uh, a lot of the same thing is happening where there's like all right i don't think you know i can coach folks how to do this so and or i don't think they can just the students can do it in general so I'm going to dilute this as opposed to chunking it, starting the rigor small and then expand, but keeping the rigor, having uh, uh, fidelity for the rigor. I, I like I think there should be integrity for aligned curriculum, not necessarily fidelity, but there should be fidelity for rigor. Right. Mm-hmm. Unapologetic, consistent focus on rigor. And if that means you have to like chunk it down a bit, so be it. And then expand that out, but it should always be there uncompromised. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that, but to that point, who's scaffolding teachers to be able to do this? Yeah, that's a really they need point. scaffolding <laughs> yeah. as well. And they need support yeah. as well to do this and differentiation and intervention. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because as much as I like, like you, I love that this teacher went to Facebook. Let's go back to that example and, and ask this question about the text. But do I think that Facebook is the place where teachers should be asking questions and then receiving <laughs> answers for things like that? Right. Like maybe as a community of learners, but not as like, a, here's what I should do in my practice. Like I would like taking it back to your medical example, um, that would not make me want to go to that doctor if I knew that my doctor who was going to do surgery on me went to Facebook and asked a question about the surgery. Now, I'm not like shaming the teachers. We love teachers. We're happy that there are these communities. And I don't think it's because of anything. Like, this is not about teachers. This is because there's not anything else. And if there is 
other things, they're not like as readily available. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like naming that, that we, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, downing teachers for doing this. Um, that, you know, but in this example, like, I feel like your vignette, like the, the teachers who are in that, that group and they're asking those questions, like Daniel is a sixth in your vignette in the paper, Daniel is a sixth grader and reading on a fourth grade level. And the vignette supplied some really tangible, like science-based research-based ways to access the text that didn't, that kept that fidelity of rigor, like you mentioned, Brandon. And that's, that's the critical piece here. It also that the curriculum, I'm, I'm making the assumption that Daniel's teacher has a uh, aligned curriculum. <laughs> so there's some pieces here where, you know, listeners might be reading this paper and, uh, and thinking, okay, so my district doesn't have curriculum. We know that that's a huge deficit and, it, you know, they might be working on other pieces until they get an aligned curriculum. Um, it's just, there's so many moving pieces here. I just want to, want to name that, that there's a lot yeah. going on in the educational landscape and, this is just such an important conversation to have. And your connected examples are really helpful, Brandon. I like them. I like the visuals you're giving. <laughs> He's the king of analogies. Yes. I love it. <laughs> and I'm going to take a step. This possibly might go into number three. We'll see. <laughs> but um, what I loved about this also reminds me of your push-up example too. But what I loved about the vignette um, and the, the second teacher B, um, was that they not only gave them what they needed to access that curriculum, but they gave them tools to become a better reader so that over time, <laughs> you know, they might be able to access that text on their own. And that's what I, that's why I think it, I get like a little like, Ooh, when I hear like, Oh, well, they just listened to the audio because then they were able to answer the questions. And I'm like, that's great. But you know, what's getting in the way of them being able to read it on their own. And when do they get the practice to be able to get better at that. Um, so that's what I loved yeah. about that. Yeah. It's, um, it's really interesting that you mentioned, because I do think, um, especially now with audible and, and podcasting mm-hmm. tool, other tools out there like this, cause we used to kind of talk about like showing the movie and the movie's not always the same as the book. And it's sort of, but this idea of Daniel being able the day before, right. For homework, to read along as he listened, right? So it's not listening instead of reading. It's listening as a support for the reading so that he understands where the story is going in this case so that when he comes into class tomorrow and our focus is on the words in the text that maybe set the theme or do something, like that the cognitive load of trying to figure out where the words are leading and what the words mean has been lifted because he's heard the story, but he is still doing the work of figuring out how those words function in the story, which is the the grade level demand of the standard they're working on. Right. So it is, um, I mean, scaffolding and supports often come back to just simply list lifting the cognitive load in terms of how many things I have to think about to do this work. Can I lift the ones that are not related to the grade level work so that the persistence and the challenge and the productive struggle are focused on the piece that is the grade level work, right? So mm-hmm. can, I, can I take away the understanding what the story is for a minute, not forever and not always, right? But for in this instance, that's not the focus of the grade level learning. The focus is the way the author uses the words. So let me get the, like, 
give the support for the story because that's not the grade level work so that Daniel can engage in the actual grade level work. Yeah. Can you guys talk a little bit about the like repeated reading um, as well as another support? Yeah. I mean, I think it serves the same purpose, right? It is Mm -hmm. that um, repeated reading to build familiarity with the cadence of the story, with the story of the story, with the vocabulary in the story, so that we then, when we get to the standards that are asking us to do analysis, we've had that repetition that does the same thing, right? It lifts the cognitive load of all of those pieces and lets me focus on the piece that the the standard is about. And I think that we we forget about that as a tool. And And I think that's where... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Melissa. <laughs> I, say, I think that's where they become better readers over time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. Yeah, I have this. Um, I have this graphic I use in one of my decks about the the sort of reciprocal nature of all of the elements of reading. Right. If you can decode, you can read some words. When you can read those the words, then you can decode more words, and you get better at decoding. Right. And that that goes in a reciprocal and. The more you read, the more words you recognize, the more words you recognize, the more words you can read, the more words you read, the bigger your vocabulary gets, the bigger your vocabulary gets, the more words you can read. Like it's constantly um, feeding. Yeah. And um, the better you are at one piece of it, the better you get at other pieces of it and the better you get at those pieces. Like, so it's all so interconnected and reciprocal and that um, the other sort of key element that I don't... I think I really think we should mention this because it is um, particularly for older readers, this idea of fluency, right? Yes, please. (laughs) So, so important. This idea of um, being fluent because, because it does, it takes away the cognitive load, right? If I'm fluent and I have the opportunity to get fluent before I have to do the analysis piece, um, it, it supports readers, right? And I think many older readers, as um, I think, Brandon, you mentioned this earlier, it's like, I don't know the sound, I'm having trouble sounding out the words, and you're spending so much time sounding out the words, you don't have enough cognitive capacity to think about the meaning, because you're using all your capacity trying to figure out the sound, right? And how to piece Mm -hmm. it together. And so this idea of building fluency, so that, um, so that we can get to meaning and that fluency instruction and fluency practice is um, I think David Lieben talks about it as like low, it's a low hanging fruit of helping kids become better readers, right? It's really pretty easy to implement. It doesn't take a lot of time. And it Mm -hmm. is um, I think the example in the text, right? Is that Daniel's teacher reads the text with the kids a couple times before they dive into the analysis she gives an opportunity to ask questions about the words, to help with pronunciation of the words, to make sure the fluency of the passage is there so that they can read it for meaning. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out, too, that what, you're, what you just shared, that vignette example, is with grade level text. So students are yeah. practicing fluency mm-hmm. in small chunks of grade level text. And that's the critical piece there mm-hmm. is that they're not, you know, and they're not like reading um a, a text that is at their level or a text that is, um, quote, made for fluency, they are practicing reading grade level texts that are rigorous and ri- with rich vocabulary in there. They're practicing repeatedly reading those texts. 
And it's the text they'll see, you know, when they get really difficult questions that they're supposed to answer about and have conversations about and write about, right? So now, now they can because they've had that practice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that it's important to note that the things that should, the, the skills and the, I guess, the provisions that you just named, like regular fluency exercise, access to grade level text, repeated reading, these are often features that are in a line curriculum that may not be right. happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I, and because yeah. it's, it's very countercultural to how we, Think about reading in general in America, I think, and definitely in the classroom. I, I remember when I first got in the line curriculum and it prompted me to reread a section. I was like, reread? We just read it. Why are we rereading? <laughs> right. Like, like, because that's just not, we, we, yeah, we like, just rewatch get through the movies, story, right? we rewatch music. I mean, we re-listen to music and we get enriched and we think about all these things or all those other things, but rereading, um, books or texts like that's not something that is is universally practiced <laughs> so yeah even though we're missing a that, lot that's of, a good point uh rigor um and and opportunities to grow as people to be able to do that yeah brandon that that music analogy just um reminded me like when you're in a classroom and you're watching this happen and you know that maybe there's some fluency practice and we're going to do three reads of this these two paragraphs right and the first time through it is like clunky and kids don't know the words mm-hmm. and by the end yeah. like in five minutes yeah you can get a fluent reading of that text and in the music analogy made me think of that like when a new song comes on it's really catchy right mm-hmm. and you start and you like you're singing it and then you stop singing so you don't know what the words are and like <laughs> a couple of times and then you know all the words and that's what fluency practice is right is a couple of times so I know all the words so I can sing along, right? So I can mm-hmm. I can do this work. And, and yeah. Then it gets Maybe to the I, point, yeah. Yeah. And then it gets to the point where you know the words, you understand the extra layers of meaning behind yes. the word behind the words. And you know, like the same could be happening when we're reading text. But you know, mm-hmm. we just have to be prompted to do that and value that, right? As as a practice to help kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you learn that chorus first and then the verses come over time um, mm-hmm. with yep. lots of mm-hmm. listens. And <laughs> if, you know, then you start to pay attention to the words, the more you listen. And uh, then hopefully not 20 years later, after you sing the song, you, you know what the words actually mean as <laughs> hopefully you know what it means sooner rather than later. But some songs I still listen to, I'm like, what? I didn't realize that that's what that was about. Yeah. Yep, so true. So true. Yep. I was walking yep. around singing that for, for lots of, lots of uh, years of life. <laughs> no, but that's a, it's such a good analogy and it's so helpful to, you know, really like help listeners think about fluency as that low hanging fruit. And, mm-hmm. and to just, I mean, almost like it, to me, it's motivating to, to hear that mm-hmm. analogy. So thank you for that. Yeah. I'm wondering we're we're almost out of time. <laughs> I don't want to keep you all too much longer, but is there anything else about the targeted intervention that you all would like to share? Um, we, you know, we, we kind of bled into the targeted intervention from the yeah. scaffolding conversation and those two things, um, work together. And I think the, the point that we started with is um, was that it's not just about doing these three things individually, adopting the aligned curriculum, supporting persistence in the work, and, and having intervention aligned with the curriculum. But it's about 
doing those things in service of one another, right? Is that the support should be toward the grade level learning and the intervention should be toward the grade level learning. And um, the, the latest paper that TNTP did is, is actually about learning acceleration. And they did the paper with Zern, so it's about math, but I think the principle still, still applies here, right? Which is that um, if we modify or remediate, do this sort of helping kids with unfinished instruction unrelated to the grade level instruction because of that deficit, they missed it kind of mindset, then we, um, we take away the opportunity for the, the learning that's going to accelerate kids, right? If we do this without connecting it to grade level, we're perpetually hindering students' access to that grade level learning. If we do it in service of the grade level learning, I am addressing unfinished instruction in my intervention, and I'm providing some strength and support for the grade level learning so I get better at the grade level learning. And again, that can that can be one of those reciprocal cycles as well, right? That... Um, the more grade level learning I have, the less intervention I need, the more intervention I get, the better I get with the grade level learning, like it can um, support as well. Yeah. And I th- this draws me back to what you mentioned earlier that, you know, when educators are feeling like I, I can't or they can't, it's because we don't know. And that's what you just described is really challenging, especially if some of those pieces are not in place, right? Like some of the pieces yeah. from the puzzle are not in place. So um, just, just saying that out loud too, like that, yeah. yes, to all of those things, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not easy. It d- does take um, some learning and some time. Yeah. I have, I have a question for you guys. You on your um, website for your podcast, do you post resources? I want to, mm-hmm. I want to, yeah. uh, uh, we're nodding. Nobody can hear us. We're nodding. <laughs> <laughs> and we just redid our, the Unbounded website. So I'm not exactly sure where this exists on the website, but I will either get you a link or a copy of the document. Um, Student Achievement Partners uh, built an er, early in the, in the process, built a document around scaffolding grade level text. And they talk about what teachers can do before reading during reading and after reading. Mm-hmm. And at Unbound Ed, we, we, because of all of these great um, open educational resources, we can build on one another's work. Um, we took that idea of the before reading, the during reading and after reading, and also um, thought about the, the places that hold complexity in a text, right? The knowledge demands of vocabulary, the sentence structure, and kind of did this grid of tools And these are scaffolds, right? They're tools that a teacher can do before reading to support kids in the grade level reading. They can do during or after, but they're categorized kind of by this will support with the knowledge demands. This will support with the language demands. This will support with the structure. And um, I would love to make that available as a resource. It wasn't um, referenced in this paper, but I think it is um, to the point that we've been continually making, right? How are we going to scaffold teachers? We need to make things available to teachers and not just in in um, Facebook, like, great, right, we, we need to make tools available. And I'd love to make sure that that's available to folks out there to kind of yeah. see some things that we didn't talk about, other ways that you can scaffold grade level text that weren't addressed in the paper. Thank you. Yeah. That's very helpful. 
We would love that. Yeah, we uh, we can post that on our website. And then we also have a newsletter that we send out weekly. So we'd love to inbox that as well. Um, might actually really compliment when we share your podcast that mm-hmm. we are linking the Unbound Ed paper and then also sharing that as a resource so that when listeners are listening to the podcast there, they can pull up the Unbound paper and then also draw into this resource as we're talking about it in real time. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. All right. So we're at the end and we always ask our guests for a piece of advice before we leave. So you guys get to see who goes first, A or B. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can go. Um, can I say one thing real quick about uh, intervention? Um, I promise it'll be real quick. No problem. Intervention is not intellectual jail. Sometimes we don't know what to do with kids. The educational environment failed them. And so they come to us and we don't know how to fix that failing. So we decide to fail them by putting them in intervention and keeping them there. It's not something that's like a support to, it's not something that's done to support grade level instruction. Um, and it's not done for like a remediation or recovery to then come out of it and then, you know, uh, join consistent grade level instruction. Sometimes it's a holding cell, uh, intellectual holding cell. So if it's going to happen, make sure that you have the mindset that that's not something that they should be eternally receiving. (laughs) And um, is to what Alice said, paired with what's actually happening uh, during grade level instruction during uh, general education courses. Um, and for advice, I would say, uh, we're obsessed with like, uh, Covey, the Covey circles <laughs> unbounded, um, the idea of having a circle. Brandon, I'm seeing some confused looks, so make sure you explain <laughs> the Covey circles. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. already what? Googling absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Stephen Covey, who's like a, um, work life business philosopher, kind of guy, he probably like the Oprah of that particular type of uh, field. Um, He uh, had this concept of like having a circle of influence and uh, a circle of concern. And our circle of influence is inside our circle of concern. Um, The things that we can actually control, manage, right? is, is smaller than the things that we're actually concerned about. But the more that we focus on the things that are in, within our influence, our management and our control, the more that circle expands into the areas of concern that we previously couldn't reach, right? So I, I would encourage educators to really focus on what can I manage right now, right? If, if your professional learning system is in shambles and you don't really have the support, uh, what can you, which might have been the case of the, this, this Facebook uh, teacher, what can you do? He figured out something that he could do and he got some good advice. It's not ideal, <laughs> right? Um, but he figured out something that he could do. Um, is there a, a teacher in, in, in your school district that's, or not in your school, maybe in your school district, but in your school that's dealing with something similar? Um, are there ways that you two uh, can meet to really understand what the curriculum is asking for and see what the science is and the practices are to help with the struggles that you're that you're you know facing right now? 
Um, so I would really look at things that even look small, but either aren't small or won't be small for long when it comes to, uh, you know, what, what, what's actually in your control and influence and to scaffold yourself, right? Like scaffold yourself into uh, this, this educator that um, does what they can to provide equitable instruction for all students. Like, you know, trying to do everything that the paper names in a day or in a week or in a month or two months is not practical. Pick one particular thing, focus on that, finesse it, refine it, and then, you know, expand into other things. Um, and, and that will go a really, really long way. Brandon, I, I really love, love these that. circles. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love both the circles of like, like not being overwhelmed by the things that you can't control, yeah. but also this idea of scaffolding in ourselves. And it, like, as you were saying that Brandon, mm-hmm. like the, the, um, the resource that I talked about sharing, I was just thinking about like all of those things can work for you as a teacher, right? Like repeated reading. How many times have you read that lesson before you deliver it? That's a scaffold to you. Will you always have to read it three or four times before you deliver it? No, but initially you may have to, right? Or chunking it, like really focusing on this is the one thing I am going to have down before I go into that classroom, right? And that, so like, I think as your listeners think about these scaffolds, um, thinking about those scaffolds for themselves as well. Like how can I use similar scaffolds to become better at this thing I'm trying to do for students? Yeah, it's really powerful. I think it's just great how you all like, I mean, we have three simple points. They're not simple, but (laughs) they read very simply. (laughs) There's a lot of depth to them. And, And I think, like you said, it can be it can feel like, oh yeah, go ahead, teachers, go ahead and go do this. It's easy when there's a lot there and teachers aren't necessarily trained to, you know, be ready to do all those things um, or have the tools to do them. And we have to think about what, what they need as well, not just the students. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, okay. um, oh, I didn't answer the question yet. Can I answer? The oh, I thought that was your advice, Alice. It was great. Oh, no, no. Go I was ahead. just yes. building off Brandon's answer. <laughs> Can't wait for more. Yeah, go. Yeah, so I think the, the, the advice Brandon gave about the circle of concern and influence and, um, and the scaffolding both require Um, what my advice is, which is this level of self-reflection, right? All of this is predicated on mindset. And I think we talked about this early in the podcast, right? I can go into the classroom with the right curriculum, but if I don't have the mindset that my students can achieve this work, then it won't happen. And so I think that that, um, really being vulnerable with yourself and reflecting internally about what is it that you really believe your students can do and how can um, how can you shift mindsets to do the reflection in order to shift your mindset to make sure that um, that you're not just saying right that you're walking the walk and not just talking the talk Yeah, that's great, Alice. Thank you so much. Yeah, that makes me think about what can I control, 
you know, but you can control mm-hmm. your mindset. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. We could keep talking <laughs> with you, but um, it was <laughs> wonderful to talk with you today about this. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no, this is fun. This is fun. It's always fun having these conversations with Alice too. So <laughs> um, I know Brandon, Brandon and I are working in different work streams right now, so we don't get to interact. Oh, <laughs> good. I'm glad we got to bring you together. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Can I close this out with one last bit of shameless self-promotion for Unbound Absolutely. Ed? We, we talked yes. a lot about today about um, teachers not having the respect and or resources they need to do this work that um, that is the most important yet most challenging work out there. And I just wanted to remind folks that we have a bunch of learning opportunities that Unbound Ed um, provides. We have virtual summits. We are beginning the planning for our first post-COVID in-person that will happen in the spring of 2022. And um, that's exciting. Yeah. And we have a couple of upcoming blog posts on this idea of glean grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. And all of these things are sort of um, the ideas are kind of interwoven with the ideas in this paper. It's the foundation of our work. And so um, it's a place to go for more if you're looking for more. Thank you. We'll share uh, all of those things. <laughs> and I'll add to the shameless plugging um, around uh, one thing that uh, Alice uh, was one of the leaders for uh, this unbounded planning process, the UPP. It, it basically is a tool to help scaffold teachers into internalizing lessons from an aligned curriculum. Um, breaking it down, making it understandable, and also assessing it for uh, cultural responsiveness in, in moments where it may not be, and then figure helping the teacher figure out how to make up for that. So that I feel like that out of many of our tools and our the things that we're we've been talking about, like aligns very, very closely. So That's amazing. I'm not going to lie. I was like shamelessly um, searching online to try to find information as you were sharing. So <laughs> you'll have to send, send me the links, uh, send us the links yeah. so that I, we can link them in the show notes. <laughs> Perfect. We'll do. Yeah. Much more effective than me trying to Google f- before you finish talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Oh, thank you guys again for having this, having us. This was really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Have a really good rest of your days. You too. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening, Literacy Lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes. And please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. And we love getting emails from you all. And <laughs> Lori we and really I really read them. Yeah, and we, we really, really respond. Fun. We just love, we love when you all reach out and we, we get to have conversations with you. So please, please email yep. us. Let us know what you're 
thinking, what you're thinking about literacy, what you're thinking about ideas for us to podcast about. Yes, ideas for <laughs> podcasting, anything. We we love to hear from you what you liked, what you want. Yeah, We're here for you. Mostly y'all are asking questions, which is great. Yes. <laughs> we don't mind that either. Yes. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.